So if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know that we started a new series entitled Instrument, and it is going through the story of Esther, this very interesting book in the Old Testament. And what we saw last week was uh, Mordecai was kind of our central figure, and he has been hiding his faith for years and years and years. He's a Jew, but he has kind of assimilated into culture. He's just kind of been bending to culture, trying to advance himself, trying to gain influence. So he hides his faith in his identity. And then there's this moment where he, for the first time maybe, decides to literally take a stand for his faith, to expose himself and to be vulnerable with his convictions and what he believes. And had to have been terrifying because this man walks through who's second in in charge of the kingdom to the king. His name is Haman. And as he walks through the decrees that you have to bow to him and pay homage and honor and worship him. And Mordecai in this moment says, no, enough hiding. I'm going to play off key. I'm going to be different than everybody else. And he decides to take a stand. I found out this week through many of you that when I was saying Haman, a lot of you were confused. You were looking, you were checking your notes, you're like, who's Haman? I know Haman, but Haman, is this like a new character in Esther that I just totally missed the first time I read it? So I was really nervous. I was like, oh no, I've been totally butchering this name the whole time. I know I'm butchering the king's name, by the way. That's why I call him King Xerxes, because I don't even want to try to say the king's name. There's no way. You know when you get the wrong pronunciation in your head and you just can't get it out? That's what happened to me with the king's name. So I don't even want to get near the king. But Haman, I was like, I think I'm right on that. So I have a, a, a friend that sits next to me. I work out of a co-working space here in Brickell called Pipeline, and the person that sits at the desk next to me has become a good friend, and he's Jewish. And so I wrote on a piece of paper, I wrote down Haman, and I showed him, I say, how do you say this? And he goes, Haman. And I was like, yes. But then he goes, but you Americans say Haman. And I was like, okay, okay. So I'm trying to be authentic. You know, I know I got the king's name wrong, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get Haman right. So when I say Haman, that's Haman, same person. And so Mordecai last week we see decides to stand instead of kneel before Haman. His friends sell him out. Tell Mordecai, because Mordecai is so self-involved that he doesn't even notice that, or Haman is so self-involved, he doesn't notice Mordecai standing. And then what we see is Mordecai is kind of placed in this position where he realizes what the king does, what Haman does. He decides, instead of just killing Mordecai, he's going to convince the king to enact a decree to kill all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Stretching from India to Ethiopia, all the Jewish people are going to be killed. And he convinces the king to do this in this very evil and crafty way. And I received this email this week as I was kind of preparing for tonight. And it was so deeply encouraging. Because one of the things that I was thinking about is that it can be so easy in life to kind of get locked into routine, right? Many of you have heard the story of Esther before. Maybe this was your first time reading Esther and and kind of understanding the story. But regardless, what happens in life, we kind of get locked into our routine. We go to work. We do our thing. We have our friends. We've got our family. We go to church. And we've heard different sermons. If you've been at Crossbridge for a while, you've heard many different sermons. You've probably heard sermons that sounded like other sermons. You hear Jesus every week and grace every week. And you're like, all the sermons kind of are the same. You know, you have this whole kind of routine that you get locked into, and sometimes we need to be pulled out of it and be reminded that the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of his people to root truth in their heart and their mind. And it shows up in amazing ways. 
So I received this email last week from uh, a, a, f- a member of our church here at Crossbridge Brickell, and many of you know her. Her name is Tilki. She works for ASOP. And she wrote me this email, and she said she was driving to work this week, and she was re-listening to the sermon on podcast from last week about playing off key, about standing up and taking advantage of the opportunities when God kind of gives you that conviction to stand for your faith and to make it known. And she has a call on the way to work with the HR representative from her company. And the HR representative is informing her of some new labor laws and what that's going to mean and how it's going to affect her as a manager of the store. And then the HR representative tells her that she's going to be receiving a lump sum of back pay. And when she hears the amount, she starts to cry on the phone. Because Toki is going through a really difficult time. And finances are really tight. And to hear of this provision, she just, you know, it just brought up all these emotions in her. And the HR representative, being a good HR professional, says, are you okay? And Toki said in this moment, she could really sense that God was telling her, to let this HR representative know that she's a Christian. She was scared, so she's like, okay, so I just went right for it. I told my whole story. I told her what's going on. I told her that I'm a Christian and that I'm emotional because I really sense and I see God's provision in my life. He's constantly faithful. He is bringing abundance and provision to me in places I never would have expected. I never expected this call, and God knew this is exactly what I needed. And then here's a little excerpt from her email. She said this. Guess what? She's also a Christian. And they started to sh- we started to share about how God is moving in her life through working for Aesop. And we both are praying for the same people. We basically had church on the phone. All because of speaking up, this happened. As risky as it felt to tell this human resources person that I'm a Christian, I felt God say, it's okay, talk. Like always, he's totally trustworthy for our best. Now, sometimes we get locked into the routine that we don't really believe and we kind of lose sight of the fact that God is faithful in the small things, even when we don't notice him. You know, the interesting thing about the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned. He never speaks, but he's very present. And that's true of our lives. God is often, seems as if he's silent. He's not speaking, but yet he's involved. And my prayer tonight, as we look at Esther, is that you would wait expectantly that God is going to root truth in your heart and your mind. That you would be reminded of his faithfulness, that he is good and he is working in your life even when you don't see him. And specifically that he has a purpose for you. He has a unique note for you to play in his orchestra. So we pick up tonight's story when Haman, he issues a decree, the city starts freaking out. It says Haman sits back, relaxes, and has a drink. And then here's where we begin. It says, when Mordecai learned that all that had been done, so he's hearing of the fact that Haman has now issued this decree to destroy all the Jews. He thought he may lose his life, but now all the Jewish people are going to be killed because he decided to take a stand. He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud voice and a bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So as this decree goes out, 
There's mourning in the city of Susa and spreading out across the empire as the Jewish people, the people of God, are reading that they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be killed. It says they tear their clothes in sackcloth and ashes. This was a a common custom or a gesture that would display deep distress and mourning. The Persians actually had something similar. They would tear their clothes in deep distress. So it's a very common gesture. It's like wearing black, but to another level. And so Mordecai is in deep distress. He's outside the king's gate. He's in sackcloth and ashes. And Esther hears about it. She hears that her friend, her cousin, Mordecai, is mourning and in sackcloth and ashes. And something really heavy is happening in his life. But Esther, at this point, does not know about the decree. Like, how does she not know? Well, she's in the palace, isolated. She's the 1% of the 1% in an elite bubble. She has no idea what's happening in the city or the rest of the empire. She has no idea what the king is doing. She doesn't know the law. She doesn't know the decree. She's isolated away. But she hears that her cousin is outside the gate mourning. And so she sends him clothes because he's in sackcloth and he refuses them. So now she's really curious. Like, okay, what is actually happening in Mordecai's life. So she sends a servant, and the servant goes and inquires, and Mordecai then tells the servant everything that's happened. I decided to stand and not pay homage and worship Haman. He decided instead of just taking me out, he convinced the king through this crafty and evil strategy to enact a decree to wipe out all the Jewish people. So that's why I'm mourning. And then he tells the servant, I want you to go back to Esther And I want you to tell her everything that's happened. Also, here's a written copy of the decrees so she knows. And I want you to give her this message. Esther, you need to go before the king and plead for your people. So the servant goes back and tells Esther all this. And you have to understand how Esther is feeling here. You have to imagine how she's feeling. Can you imagine what it felt like for her to hear this? See, the reason that this is not a simple request is because no one knows Esther is a Jew. Her Jewish name is Hadassah, but she goes by Esther. The king does not know she's a Jew. She hid her identity so that she could reach a place of influence, that she might be made queen, because if the king knew she was a Jew, she never would have been made king, queen. So she's been hiding her identity. Mordecai told her to do that as well. And now Mordecai is saying, Go before the king, tell him that you lied to him, and ask him to reverse this decree that he's made and kind of humiliate himself in the process of enacting a decree and then very shortly kind of disbanding it. But not only is that weighing heavy on her, but she also recognizes who the king is because the Persians at this time were practicing Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism is a dualistic religion. It's not aggressively monotheistic, but it's not really truly polytheistic like many other religions. It's this really interesting hybrid, and it's kind of consolidating worship under one supreme god that is called Ahura Mazda. So if you drive a Mazda, you're kind of Zoroastrian. I drive a Mazda, just found that out. So it's this really interesting religion, and this was previously really favorable for the Jewish people because the Jewish people are monotheistic. They believe in one supreme God, Jehovah. And then you have the Zoroastrians who were very favorable to other religions. They were very tolerant. They let the Jewish people go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and their temple and their walls, but 
King Xerxes is different than his predecessors. The attitude begins to change. He's not as okay with other religions as the previous kings. He wants people to follow Zoroastrianism. And so Esther is being asked to go tell the king that she's lied to him. She's not a Persian. She's a Jew. And she's been practicing another faith. She believes in a different God. And she believes that her God is the one true God. And the God that the king thinks is supreme and wants everybody to follow is a false God. Can you imagine how that felt? So she's sitting there thinking to herself, like, I don't know if this is a good idea. Like, she's hesitant. It's understandable. And so she tells Mordecai, listen, all of these reasons, I'm, I can't go back, but also here's the deal. I know that you think, like, the king and I are really good, but it's not good. I have not even been invited to see him for 30 days. I don't know what's going on. So I can't just walk in there. Anybody that walks into the king's chamber without an invitation is killed on the spot. That is a law. And me and the king are not doing well. So I don't know if this is going to work. I mean, great idea, but I don't know if I'm the person. And then Mordecai responds to her. He says this. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's response to Esther is, listen, they're going to put two and two together. You're going to, you're, they're going to realize that you're a Jew. You're my cousin. There's going to be that connection. If you remain silent, you're going to perish eventually. But I just want to ask you this question, Esther. Do you not think that God has placed you here in this place, in this position, in this kingdom, for such a time as this. He's asking Esther to kind of like look back at all the coincidences. We coincidentally decided to not go back to Jerusalem like many of our friends. We stayed to be in the Persian culture. And then you went into this competition to be made queen. And against all odds of thousands of other women, you were elevated to become queen. And five years later, now this is coming forth where there's an opportunity for you to stand up for your people. Do you not think that God has you here for this exact time? And I don't think, Esther, it's for you to be silent. I think the note that God has for you to play, your purpose, your calling, is to step courageously into this moment. I know it's terrifying, but... Don't you see what God is doing? You know, I was thinking of that question this week, and I wanted to ask you, when's the last time that you asked yourself the question, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? What is my calling? We say that a lot as well. What is the unique note that God wants me to play? What has he wired me to do? You know, many of you in the room are questioning that right now. Maybe you're starting a new career, you're thinking about changing your career. Maybe you just moved to Miami. Maybe you just began to become a part of this church. Maybe you just begun the journey of faith. Things are changing and shifting in your life, and you're asking yourself that question. What, what's my purpose? What's my calling? What's my unique note to play? Or maybe some of you have been living this kind of stable but 
somewhat repetitive life and you feel like the walls are closing in and you're asking yourself that really haunting question, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I missing something? Kind of feel like I'm missing something. And some of you are here and you feel like you've identified at least part of your calling and your purpose and you're living it out. But all of us have that like little sinking doubt. Like, am I doing exactly what God has called me to do? Have I really realized my purpose? Am I really playing the unique note that God has for me? And as opportunities come and go in our lives, we begin to rethink that and we question that. You know, if someone were to come up to you after the service, you're hanging out in the back and you meet somebody and they say, hey, what's your purpose? Would you be able to answer it? When you can't, it's an uncomfortable position, right? A lot of you, even as I'm talking about it, you're feeling uncomfortable. You're like, yeah, I know I'm struggling with that. I'm trying to figure out my calling and my purpose and I, I think I have part of it, but I don't know if I have all of it. You know, there's... It's a difficult place to be because as human beings, we're constantly asking ourselves that question. That question of meaning and purpose is rooted in the heart of every human being. And one of the things that happens when you come to faith is that that question becomes more difficult. You would think it would become easier. It becomes more difficult. Here's why. Because you're asking yourself this question. What is my purpose and what is God's purpose for me? And are they different? (laughs) Do I believe my purpose is this, but somehow God has a different purpose and I'm ignoring it or I'm manufacturing my purpose? It becomes really difficult. And I think sometimes the reason that we don't find the answer to purpose and calling and the unique note that God has for you to play in your life, to find joy and contentment and hope there, is because we're locked into a routine in life. Any of you feel like you're in a routine in life? You go to work to accomplish a task so that your bosses and your directors and people may notice, you may reach that next promotion so you can just keep climbing the ladder to routine over and over again. You go out on Friday night with your friends because you want to keep your friendships because you don't want to feel alone and you want to have a social circle and you want to be able to put something on Instagram so people don't know that you're just watching Netflix all the time. You have a routine that you're in. You're going, to hang, you're going to do these certain things with your family because you want to be a good parent and because you want to keep your family moving forward. You go to church on Sunday because you're a Christian and you're supposed to. We have this routine that we get locked into. Now listen, routines are good. A, a life without routine is chaos, I know. I used to say yes to everything. I had no routine. It was a mess. And some of you are like, yeah, that's me. I have no routine. It is a disaster. Yes, routines are good. But here's the problem. Your purpose can become fulfilling your routine. That's what happens. Your your purpose and your calling becomes fulfilling a routine in your life that either you've created for yourself or other people have pressured you into. You're you're trying to live out some American dream. You're trying to, to fulfill something your parents told you to. Your friends kept telling you this, you're trying to do that. Culture is pressuring you to be like this and to accomplish this and to look like this. And so your your purpose has become to just fulfill your routine. You get locked into that. And you miss everything outside of it. You know, I've been been going to playgrounds a lot lately because I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old son. And he loves the playground. And I love taking him to the playground and watching him engage and and play and have a good time. I love going to the playground too. I wish I had adult playgrounds. That would be amazing. 
But I love going because it's nostalgic, right? You begin thinking about when you were a kid and, and the playgrounds you went to, when you played lava, when mysteriously the ground was on fire and you couldn't touch it and you're trying to navigate all around. But I was sitting there thinking this week as I was at the playground, okay, the people that designed this, the engineers and the architects and the designers behind the playground equipment were probably sitting there thinking, we're going to make this really nice playset. We're going to have some stairs, and the kids are going to walk up the stairs, and then they're going to cross this bridge, and then if they want, they can swing on the monkey bars, and then there's going to be a slide. They could slide down. They're going to walk around. They're going to do it again. They're going to have the best time, and then the parents are going to love us because we're going to put a little plastic shade top so in the summer's heat, they're cool. This is going to be wonderful. When you go to a playground, kids do not do that, Right? It's like, oh, stairs with handrails, those are balance beams. A bridge, I'm not going to walk across a bridge. I'm going to climb on top of the bridge, and I'm going to jump to another part to see if I can make it over there. Slide, I'm not going down the slide. I'm running up the slide. The monkey bars are not for swinging. They're for climbing on top of and running to see if I don't fall through the cracks. And if I do, I'm going to fall, but it's okay. And that shade top, that's not a shade top. That's the top of the fort. you got to climb up there. It's, it's you know, you got to see if you can get to the top and not let anybody else up. See, kids don't go to the playground and see, oh, there's a routine to follow. Let me just walk up the stairs and go across the bridge and down the... No, no, no. They see the playground. They're like, I'm going to have fun. And I'm going to do whatever I want to do. There's no rules here. You see, we need to hear this. You are not here to fulfill a routine. There's not some, some perfectly set routine that someone told you or that you created for yourself that is your purpose. That's not your purpose, to fulfill a routine. And when you get stuck in that, you're locked in and you miss everything outside of it. You see, our routine is not our purpose. And sometimes we we fall into that. See, our note to play actually is to courageously and actively follow God's will. That's your note. That's your purpose. That's your calling. It's to courageously and actively follow God's will. There's a very famous pastor and writer. His name is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And during World War II, as he was just a pastor and he was called to minister to this community and to this church, Hitler takes over and he's living in Germany. And there's an opportunity there, not unlike Esther, to say, do I remain silent? Or do I step into this opportunity that God has presented me to courageously stand up for what is obviously evil? He decides to step into it. And he is speaking out and protesting against what Hitler and the Nazi regime is doing. He's working to try to overthrow what is taking place. And it eventually leads to him being imprisoned and moved to a concentration camp and then hanged. But his works and his books and his story is still impacting people today. That was God's unique note for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to step into. And he has this great quote. He says this, Being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. You see, being a Christian is not about becoming a more moral person each and every day. It's not about being able to say to somebody, you know, I've been a Christian for a year and I don't speed anymore. It's pretty amazing, right? We sometimes get locked into like being a Christian is somehow becoming more moral and a better person as if 
God accepts us and loves us because we're growing in our morality. Now, it is good to grow and find victory over sin and to begin to understand God's truth and to follow after that. But being a Christian is less about avoiding sin and it's about stepping into God's will with courage. That's what it means to be a Christian and to follow after what God has for you. And so Esther is faced with this moment. She's probably asking herself, like, I I didn't think this was my purpose. I didn't think this was my calling. I didn't ask for this. And yet God has presented me with this opportunity. And Mordecai's asked me that question. Do you not think that God has you here for such a time as this? She's terrified. But here's how she responds. She says, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. You see, Esther is faced with this question. Do you not think, Esther, that God has put you here for this exact moment? I know it is terrifying to step into God's will. But will you courageously step into it? And she's faced with this, and she recognizes that her purpose and her calling is this right here, this opportunity that's been presented to her. Notice the first thing she does. She doesn't say, awesome, good, and run to the king's chamber. Hey, king, I'm coming in. No, no. She says, here's what we're going to do. Mordecai, you're going to go gather all the Jewish people. I want you to begin to fast and pray on my behalf for what I'm going to do. I'm going to begin to fast and pray as well. And then I will go into the king's gate. And if I die, I die. The first thing that she does is she organizes worship before she steps into God's will that has been made known to her. You know, we read stories like this and you you see this example of Esther and you're like, wow, what courage. You ask yourself this question, could I be like Esther? We look back at all the great leaders with great callings all throughout the Old Testament, men like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, women like Esther, and so many more. And we think, wow, look at their courage to step into the opportunities that God has presented to follow courageously after God's will. They found their purpose and their calling and their unique note to play in God's orchestra. But they're different from me. They're, they're, they're more spiritual. They're better people. They're stronger. They're unique. God doesn't have anything for me. I'm like average, maybe below average. I'm just kind of locked into my routine of life, and I guess it is what it is. You see, the author of Esther wants you to know something. You are like Esther. You can be like Esther. We are like Esther and Mordecai. Look at their character that we've already seen in the first four chapters. The the author is very clear to let us know that both Mordecai and Esther, who show great courage to follow God's will, they both make decisions that are morally unjustifiable, really unwise decisions. They're both cowardly with their faith for such a long time. Esther, even here, is hesitant And yet, as she sits and she waits, she steps into the opportunity with courage, and then she begins it with organizing worship. See, we're not unlike Esther. 
The problem is, is that we miss it a lot of times because we're trying to manufacture our purpose. We even use language like that. I'm just trying to find my purpose. Right? Have you ever said that? I'm trying to find my purpose. I'm trying to find my calling. As if it is up to us to create and to find. You see, Esther doesn't find her purpose. She's sitting there in the palace, has no idea what's happening. Then she hears about it. And she realizes that this is exactly what God has called her to do. And actually, her calling is a result of somebody else's action. She's not, she doesn't do anything to create it. She doesn't, try to, she doesn't manufacture it. She's actually hesitant to receive it. But then she steps into it with courage. And she's able to say, if I die, I die. I know this is what God has called me to do. And I'm going to step into it. You see... It's so important to understand that you do not find your purpose, but you realize your purpose in Christ. It's a big difference between those. You do not find your purpose, you realize it in Christ. So if you ask your question, how do I find my purpose? How do I find my calling? You pursue Jesus. How do I come to understand the unique note that God has for me to play? You pursue Jesus. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the way, the truth, And the life. How do you live? Jesus. Who's the truth? Jesus. What does it look like to live a life that is great? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then the Apostle Paul says this. To live is to manufacture and find your purpose. What does he say? He says to live is what? Christ. So what does it mean to live? Christ. How do you find your way in this world? Christ. How do you find your purpose? Christ. Who are you called to? Christ. You see, some of us need to hear this about purpose and calling. Relax. Just relax. Okay? We're always trying to manufacture it and to make it and to to make a, a difference. We just need to relax. Oftentimes, our purpose comes like Esther when we're least expecting it. God brings those opportunities You see, if we're seeking to live God's will, then he's the one writing the song, which means we're not in control at all. It's God's will. It's not our will. God is bringing out all these opportunities in your life to follow after his will. And what he asks of you is to pursue Jesus. And then when the opportunities are presented, step into them with courage. When God makes known to you that this is your unique note to play and you can feel it, You may have hesitation. You may be terrified to step into it. You step into it with courage. But the only way you're ever going to do that is if you're pursuing Jesus. That's how you realize your purpose. Esther starts with worship before she actually launches into action. That's where we begin. It's where we start. As we come to understand our unique note to play in God's orchestra, we pursue Jesus. We realize it there. And God will bring the opportunities to step in. Will you pray with me?